among you suffering, then they should pray. Are any cheerful, they should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick, they should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My friends, if any among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save that sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. practice. It's not a word most people like very much, is it? Practice. I mean, doing feels a lot better than practicing, right? I heard an interview some years ago with Ray Charles upon the occasion of his 67th birthday. He was releasing this five-CD collection of his songs that was intended to celebrate his 50 years in the music business. And so this interview on NPR, um, the interviewer said, um, Ray, do you still practice after all these years? And he said, well, I try to practice every day. And the interviewer said, well, I, what, do you, what do you practice? The songs that you'll play in concert? And he said, no, 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 no. I practice scales and chords and movements. I, I, I practice to improve. I already know the songs I'm going to play in concert. I practice to be able to play the songs I'll play someday. I like that, but it, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, we live in a society that wants things done now don't want to have to spend all that time getting it right. They want satisfaction instantaneously. Uh, people would love to be marathoners, lose 30 pounds, learn a new language, but it's, it's the getting there that's the tough part, right? Wasting all that time getting it right, come on. It, I mean, really, it'd be better if we were already excellent guitar players or sculptors or lawyers or accountants 
I mean, wouldn't it be nice to call ourselves those things and, and just have that be enough? <laughs> like you can just declare, I am a, I'm a cardiologist. That would be pretty handy. Just not have to practice at all. I mean, think about it. We have in this country an infatuation with antibiotics. I mean, doctors, we all know, are overprescribing all kinds of drugs. But antibiotics in particular, people who have had a cold or other viral infections, they often go into their doctor and they demand some antibiotics. I mean, even though antibiotics don't touch viral infections. And, just, and don't get me started on horse paste and malaria medicine. Anyway, but because of the anti antibiotic obsession in this culture, we've got some problems. Drug-resistant bacteria from overprescribing antibiotics. So instead of enduring some discomfort now, people would rather take a magic pill in the hopes that it will make all their ailments just sort of disappear. Instead of some Kleenex and chicken soup, people convince themselves that there must be a way to avoid all this misery. Except it doesn't really work with antibiotics because they, they treat bacterial infections and not viruses. And so now we've got all kinds of problems that are going to be really difficult to fix. But, I mean, really, what do we expect in the land of Jiffy Lubes and microwave ovens? I mean, we want what we want, and we want it now. Who wants to wait? Who wants to have to endure the drudgery of practice, work? People want what they want, and generally want it packaged and delivered with as little expenditure of their own energy as possible. Now, Christianity, which exists in this same culture, is often no exception. But the idea of being Christian is still fairly popular, although much less so than even a few years ago. But the actual living of Christianity isn't nearly as appealing. Now, James anticipates this. He begins his letter by saying, but be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. <laughs> Which is to say, James isn't impressed with the tendency to want our faith served to us in bite-sized, pre-digested nuggets that don't put any strain on our gastrointestinal system. Easy tips, helpful hints about how to be nicer people, how to hold back the darkness that inevitably descends on all of us. Worship that makes people feel better about lives filled with too much stuff and too little care for other people. Evangelism that seeks to swell the roles and increase the budget, but doesn't ask folks to commit to living as if God's new creation and its commitment to peace and justice were already here. Placing upon us responsibilities right now. Easy believism that doesn't ask people to repent of their racism or homophobia or misogyny, xenophobia, but, but, but tells them that all they need to do in order to satisfy the requirements to tick the boxes is, what, 
Salute the flag, oppose gay wedding cakes, avoid sleeping with the wrong people. I mean, you wouldn't believe the amount of email I get purporting to tell me just how our church here at Douglas Boulevard, without any real effort, can bring people through the doors in droves. Flashy website, hip new program. Pretty soon, we'll have people flocking to find out what's happening at Douglas Boulevard Christian Church. And if only we'd expand our parking or retool the music or serve lattes in the narthex or, or, or make the sermons more relevant, then we'd have so many people we wouldn't even know what to do with them all. And now that we're in the midst of a pandemic and we're worshiping online, the message has changed a little bit, obviously. I mean, all we need now to do is for me to pay some money to attend Zoom conferences and webinars that will unlock the secret of widening our appeal through the magic of online worship production. <laughs> I mean, you, you see the logic, right? Just a few adjustments here, a tweak there, five simple steps, and the church doesn't really ever have to break a sweat to live like Jesus. <laughs> and that's pretty enticing, isn't it? I mean, if you listen to the folks who are making a living at selling gospel riches, you, you, you don't really have to work. There's not really any practice involved. I mean, it's so simple that anyone can do it in the privacy of their own home. Just a few dollars, a small donation, really. And you too can watch your membership explode. See, but James isn't sold on that line of thinking. James says... In fact, you, you have to act like a follower of Jesus. Now, <laughs> there's a novel idea. We've got to do things that Jesus' followers do. We've got to pray and sing. The elders need to go to the sick. We live, must live in community, live up to our responsibility for looking out for one another. James doesn't give us any quick tips. You want to follow Jesus? Well, you've got to practice. There's no 18 days to a new Christian you. No, it takes, it takes a lifetime. And even after we've been at it for 50 years, we'll still have to practice to improve, to be able to play the music that we'll play someday. But James says that the upshot of it all is that our determination to live disciplined lives that followers of Jesus are called to live just may pull somebody back from the edge. Right? Do the little things. Pray, minister to those in need, love and heal one another's brokenness. Live like Jesus. And we may just be the light that pulls someone back from the darkness. James doesn't tell us to get all the words right. He doesn't ask us to get PhDs in biblical studies. James doesn't require us all to become ordained pastors, which I think we can all agree is a good thing, because, I mean, really, who needs that kind of scrutiny? All those nosy ministers walking around? <laughs> James says, Live like you actually believe Jesus is who he said he was. And that's the greatest testimony you'll ever give. 
According to James, we're not called to believe the right things, say the right things, or have the right bumper stickers on our cars. According to James, our job is to live like Jesus asked us to live. But simple. Do the things Jesus did and people will see Jesus standing right there in front of them. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, house the homeless, bind up the brokenhearted, give voice to those who have no voice, sing with those who sing, mourn with those who mourn, heal the sick, pray and cry and laugh and confess your sins because Lord knows we've all got plenty to confess. And the miracle of it all is that when the church begins to act like Jesus, it becomes its own best advertisement. But we don't do any of those things because by doing them, we'll somehow be successful and attract hordes of young families pulling trailers full of cash into our parking lot. We live like Jesus because it's the right thing to do. Because it's what Jesus asks of us. You see, praying and, and going out to lay healing hands on someone who's broken, showing hospitality to those who are different from us, loving our enemies, that is our vocation. It's, it's, it's a way of shining a light in a world filled with the shadows of violence and emptiness in which too many people simply don't care about anything or anyone but themselves. See, we, we can't pay somebody to do what God wants us to do. True Christianity, at least according to James, has no stake in marketing the church in a way that says to the world that it's painless and easy to follow Jesus or that if we take up with Jesus, we'll find a seven-step plan to a healthy psyche. I mean, we can't just believe stuff. People want to know what difference these beliefs make in our lives. Do they help us feed the hungry? Do they help us clothe the naked or welcome the stranger? Does our, our, our faith open us up to embrace those who've been told over and over again that they're just not good enough? Do the lives we lead bring hope and healing to those who've only experienced faith as a club to be wielded, to beat people into submission and too often only against those who have the least ability to defend themselves. Do our beliefs ask anything of us for them? See, following Jesus is a way of embodying the good news that God loves all of us. So that what people see is now this new world that God is busy creating. A world that's radically different from anything that this often hard and cold world is used to. It's a way of life that offers a powerful and sometimes strange challenge to do something counterintuitive, like loving the people the rest of society tells us it's okay to forget about. Following Jesus means that we're messengers of something. It means not only that we believe stuff about Jesus, but that we commit ourselves to acting like Jesus so that others, who may very well be living in despair, might see what hope looks like just by looking at our lives. 
I love the story that Will Willman told, uh, tells about the time when Tony Campolo came to speak at chapel at Duke University. The day before Campolo showed up, a young student, a freshman, uh, came and asked Willeman if he could introduce Dr. Campolo. And Willeman said, <laughs> okay, but keep it short. So the student stood up on Sunday to introduce Campolo and, and told the story about the summer where he worked with, with him in the inner city in Philadelphia. And he said, I grew up in a small Methodist church, and I was active in high school, youth group, and, and last summer I went to a week-long rally in Philadelphia where Tony Campolo was a speaker, and we were in a downtown church, and Campolo started preaching, and he, and, he, and, he, and he got us all fired up, and he said, now we're going to go take Jesus to Philadelphia. Let's go out and get him. And the kid said, well, we rushed outside, and we got on buses, and we went from a bad part of town to a worse part of town. And we drove through vacant lots and all of that kind of stuff, and we stopped in front of one place that just didn't look like there was much hope there. And Campolo opened the door, and he said, now, get out there and show them Jesus, and I'll be back at 5 o'clock to pick you up. And the kid said, we went out there, looked around at each other, and we just sort of went our separate ways. And this young guy said, uh, I've never seen anything like this before. And so I picked this old building and I went in, and I walked up one flight of stairs, and the hallways were dark, and the stairs were in disrepair, and you could hear the babies crying, and there was trash everywhere, and I knocked on the door, and I heard this voice that said, who is it? And I said, I, I, I just want to talk to you. <laughs> what about? Well, I just want to talk. And this woman threw open the door, and there were two naked babies, one at her side, one in her arms, and she said with a cigarette in her mouth, what do you want? And I said, well, I want you to, I just want to talk to you about Jesus. And he said, that woman cussed me down the hallway, cussed me down the stairs, cussed me out the front door, and cussed me down the street. And she closed the door, and I just cried. Because I wanted to do the right thing. I looked around me and I said, I'm just some kid from the suburbs. And I, and I didn't know anything. And so I walked down the street and I found a boarded up, fortified store. And as I walked in, I remembered two things. One, the children didn't have diapers. And two, she was smoking a cigarette. And so I bought a box of diapers and a carton of cigarettes. And I went back and I knocked on the door again. And, I, and she said, who is it? And then the door flung open and I shoved that box of pampers in there and those cigarettes and she said, all right, come in. And so I opened up 
the pampers and put one on the baby and one on the older child. And she offered me a cigarette. And then I'd never really smoked before, but I did that day. And I played with the baby and I stayed there the rest of the afternoon. About 4.30, she said, what are you really doing here? I mean, why did you come here? And so I started to tell her everything I knew about Jesus. It took about three minutes. And he said, when, we got, when I got through that day, Tony asked us, did you convert anybody? And I said, yeah, me. You've made me a follower of Jesus. See, I'm convinced that we won't find the answers to the church's problems and gimmicks. I mean, I think the answer will be found in a community of people who are bold enough to live out their faith in public. In a community of people who insist that we follow James' instruction to pray and minister to the suffering, to sing with those who sing, in a community of people who go out and seek to heal the sick, who stand up for justice, who trust one another enough to tell the truth. I'm convinced that the answer will be found in a community of people who are willing to give their lives to save a soul from the thousand and one ways people are dying every day while clinging to some hope that they might find somebody who lives like they actually believe this whole Jesus thing. And you know what? If you get in on this deal, you might find that the soul that gets saved is yours. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.